0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Barry Venata, who's an angel investor, operator and founding partner of Metagrow VC, an early stage venture firm for focused on promoting and putting regions like Australia and Southeast Asia on the world stage. Welcome to the show, Barry.
1: Thanks for having me, Rohit. Appreciate it.
0: Awesome. So, um, so you know, I, I was uh, quite intrigued by your profile. Uh, you have had experience in, uh, in, in tech companies, but, you know, what got you interested in this crazy world of venture capital?
1: Well, it was definitely not organic, I would say. I think it was something that I've Thought about it for a while. It wasn't really VC that got me interested. It was more, more so the angel investing side of things. So, I guess for me, my background has is always has and always will be in tech. And my, you know, I I have a you know, my bread and butter is in engineering and sort of, uh, you know, mostly electrical engineering and computer science. And I was always been fascinated about helping build cool stuff. And then uh, after working for a while in industry for large corporations, I felt that my skills weren't being utilized to, to the fullest. So I decided to embark on more of the early stage route, uh, more risky, obviously, but potentially more reward as well. So that's where I started to think about getting more involved in the startup ecosystem a little bit more as an operator, sort of trying to understand my way through the, uh, the the sort of the the workings of how startups work, how do you fundraise and all that stuff. So it was definitely a massive learning experience for me. But at the same time, in the back of my head, I've always been interested in, well, how do you get into like early stage deals like Airbnb or Uber? It's always been very fuzzy. I've always heard um, stories about people getting in super early and all that stuff. So, you know, like many other people, you just get this. There's this mystique around angel uh, investing. Well, once you don't know anything about it, but once you do, it becomes much more transparent. And that's where I started to be more involved in building networks. I think angel investing is obviously uh, private markets. So, getting into those types of deals is really. Based on people you know. So that's where I figured that, you know, once I was sort of in this ecosystem and I had my front, my door, my foot through the door, I was like, well, I got to start meeting people now. I've got to like start to network. I've started to do things. And I think for me, that was really uh, an epiphany for me to realize, oh, okay, it's not necessarily about what you know, but who you know when yeah. it comes to in angel investing. And so that was really the trigger for me to get more involved. Um, I saw a few deals. I, I initially started off with like, uh, what was it, crowdfunding investing, but I really soon realized that there was that was a bit of a dead end because the terms weren't great and, um, you know, there was – moms and dads trying to get into these types of overvalued deals. So not my cup of tea, but it did give me a sense and appreciation of the the work that these founders were doing to raise money. And so I started to, obviously, as I said, just network with more and more people. And eventually, I got into uh, incredible deals. Uh, and then hopefully from that, was able to uh, sort of build more people within my network and get them to know um, how to sort of share deal flow and and all that stuff. So I think once you're in, you're able to um, reciprocate in order, in, instead of just get, receiving deal flow, you can give deal flow as well, which is nice. So there's definitely a mutual benefit to being part of that community. So for me, getting into sort of the answering your question is getting into VC was never my uh ultimate goal per se it just so happened that i just like being part of that angel investing community i loved engaging with founders and people and then it just so happened that i started to be led down this pathway of building out what metagrove is today which is a you know an emerging venture capital fund
0: Interesting. You know, uh, you, you said a couple of, couple of interesting points about crowdfunding. So I I was investing into into Republic and, you know, a few other crowdfunding platforms. Uh, and then I also, yeah, you know, started looking at AngelList and a few other uh, platforms. But I was just wondering, you know, if somebody is starting off with uh, with AngelList, uh, I'm sorry, with angel investing, what should be the uh, uh, you know, check size for uh, for for investing into startups? Uh, you know, there's a lot of taboo about, you know, putting uh, very small checks of $1000 to $5000 and people think, you know, you're not an angel mm-hmm. investor, but do you think somebody should start with $1000 or should they start with $10000 per per deal? What's your advice on that?
1: Well, it really depends because I think for a long time, angel investing has always been a bit of a cottage industry. And I think that it's definitely been difficult for people who don't have the capital to Mm -hmm. start investing. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who would love to start angel investing, but they find that there are a lot of restrictions and now some of those restrictions would be well. One, I have to be an accredited investor. Yeah. I need to be earning this much on a yield, or I have to be, you know, have this amount of number of assets, which is fine because I think it's, you know, I think it's important to to do that. But in terms of the number of dollars you should invest, I think as low as a thousand dollars should be fine. I think it really depends on the relationships you have with these types of founders. If we've put crowdfunding aside for the moment and we just focus on just investing directly into companies, I think it really depends on what you're able to offer and how no, how well you know the founders. If you know the founders well and you've been friends with them or you've been able to open doors for them, I think you have every right to ask for an allocation into their cap table. The question is, how much would that be allocation be? A lot of founders don't want a very... Um, heavy cap table with a lot of you know hundreds and you know thousands of of uh, angel investors sure. but they're willing to let things slide a little bit if they know you well and so if you're able to get in deals they're asking for $1000 i think you should do it and and i think you know it gives you a sense of um skin in the game it yeah. gives you a sense of accountability that you have to now you know, it's it's your in your best interest to actually help these founders grow. But at the same time, there'll be a lot of founders who say, look, you know, $1,000 is kind of too small. How about $10,000 or, you know, $15,000? And that's perfectly fine. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's these founders who are really dictating the terms as they should. It's not the investors. But I think that if you're able to negotiate well and you're able to offer something valuable to the founders, whether it be access to your network, could be access to your knowledge your insights into your experience let's say you have some amazing sales experience or you're an amazing CTO and they need someone to guide that through them then you should put it out there for them because at the end of the day it's an interview and you want to you know showcase your ability to help because the last thing you want is an angel investing, or is is any investor for that matter, to sort of sit there as a fly on the wall and just wait for the you know exit event. I think that's kind of like what a lot of passive investors do. But I think as an angel investor, if you do want to get in that low with those check amounts, check size amounts, I think it's in your best interest to to really showcase what you're capable of and how you can help at the end of the day.
0: Got it. And uh, when you mentioned that you uh. Sh- you know, look at investing into people whom, you know, Um, can you also look into, you know, investing into into people you don't know, like, uh, but you invest into angel syndicates, uh, people whom you, you know, whom you follow on these syndicates. Uh, Would you advise people to start off from there? Because, you know, you get a lot of good deals from these syndicate leads.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you are able to access syndicate again it goes back to the the notion of who you know so yes. at the end of the day it really depends on who's leading the syndicate so if you know your friend of a friend is leading the syndicate then that's a good sort of degree of separation between you and them and you kind of know who they are so to speak again it, it there are definitely a lot of platforms nowadays where uh you know syndicates are becoming much more, uh, exciting and and uh, ubiquitous angelis for example is one example of that and let's say for example you don't know who the lead is and in many cases these leads are public they'll say look come to my syndicate and you know you will give you you'll share the deals and mostly you can join for free you don't really have to uh Join in any deal that they offer to you, but at least you get to see exactly what type of deals that are coming through the pipeline, and it gives you a sense of you know is this something that I I want to be a part of? If it's not, then that's fine. You can go to another syndicate, but at least getting a first flavor of exactly what type of companies are coming through is, is pretty important because you want to make sure that you're comfortable yourself investing your money into the syndicate. And some syndicates are different. Some have specific mandates that they only invest in B2B SaaS, for example, or you know, B2C, for example. So you really got to have your own Personal mandate. What do you want to invest in? And you know, do you have any preference? Am I investing in climate tech only, or do I want to invest in only in AI? And so you really got to sit down and think about well. Do I have my own personal thesis that I want to abide by? And in most cases, most people don't. They just say, look, I'll just invest whatever is opportunistic. And so that's where you can start to uh, experiment with different types of leads and syndicates. And even sometimes, sorry, connect with the lead as well. You might be able to jump on a phone call like, hey, I know you're leading the syndicate. I'd love to be part of it. But, you know, I just don't know you that well. Can we just get on a five to 10 minute phone call and and tell me about yourself and I can tell you about me? And then, you know, from there, I think it really takes a bit of effort, but it's not so much effort that it's daunting. Uh, but at the end of the day, once that heavy lifting is done, you'll be much more comfortable knowing that you're, you know, you know who the person is and then you can start to invest comfortably as an angel.
0: Hmm. Got interesting, and uh, you know, I also found that uh, you're part of the uh, founders institute. You know, so so was I. In, uh, I think this is cohort four, but I, I, it was uh, I could not complete it. But w- 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 what do you think about platforms like you know founders institute? You know, does what sort of platforms help you in raising funding and get to understand more about you know what should be the thesis of a fund?
1: Yeah. I mean, founder Institute, I, so backstory on that is that I did that probably in r- around, uh, late 2020 or early 2021 where, and I was part of cohort one, which was sort yes. of the inaugural, uh, cohort for founders Institute. And they, they named it VC lab and the, the whole notion of VC lab is to really inspire the next generation of, uh, venture capital investors, much like in the same way that you have accelerators for founders, yeah. VC Lab is an accelerator for emerging fund managers. So I was part of that, and I was uh, sort of, you know, you, you, it's, it's the first time that they were doing this, and Adeo and his team were great. They, they really provided a good insight into uh, what, uh, what was needed. The highs and the lows, and and so and sort of also what was required in order to build a fund, and they really made it uh, a bit more streamlined, which was kind of nice. And they really showed you exactly how to put a thesis together, how to put a pitch deck, how to approach LPs, how to manage LPs. So I think that from that perspective, it was super helpful. Obviously, they're not going to connect you. You know, their job is not to connect you with any LPs. That's your own job doing and your own doing. But they will guide you along the way. And from that perspective, I think it was a great way. And, and I think we need more of that. That's, it's really cool to see more uh, people get involved in, in the VC space. I think there's definitely a lot of areas to be investing in and tackling um, and being focused on, whether it be climate tech, AI, uh, agriculture, especially in different regions of the world as well with the geographic mandate. So I think we need more people to be raising money to invest in these game-changing innovations. And I think VC Lab was a, a good pioneer of that.
0: Today, I have an interesting stat for you to you denote know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use slash Social Pilot to get a 14 day free trial. I've never been to Australia, but but two of the biggest uh, companies, Canva and Notion, uh, are Australian companies. You know, so uh, what's what's the focus in in Australia? Is it more B two B SaaS companies, or, or do you see a lot of consumer companies coming out of Australia?
1: Initially, I think traditionally it was obviously is very B two B focused. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of changing nowadays, where you are seeing a paradigm shift in the way companies are founded. I think with, you mentioned Atlassian and Canva, obviously those are great examples of companies that have, you know, they, they're they kind of like B2B in some cases and also B2C in many cases as well, but right. they, you know, they started out just doing something that they wanted to solve a problem and it just so happened it blew up. So it was kind of, a uh, blob up in a good way. So in, in, I mean, that they've globally expanded and, and now doing really well for themselves. But I think for the most part, if I was to say the default, uh, model right now in Australia and, and sort of this part of the world, and also probably parts of the US as well is, is primarily B2B SaaS. Sure. I think there are edge cases where there are founders who are focused on, uh, B2C, you know, they've, we've had uh, a few companies that have been acquired. Uh, recently. I think there was a company, there was a fragrance company, no, sorry, I think there was a cosmetics company that was acquired uh, by L'Oreal in the past couple of months for a few billion dollars. And that was Australian uh, owned as well. So that was direct to consumer. So there is definitely avenues for that. I think because of the generally smaller population of Australia, it really requires you to go out and expand into whether it be Southeast Asia or the US. So you know you definitely need to have a global mindset when you are building uh, these uh, direct-to-consumer products. But it is doable at the end of the day.
0: Got it. And uh, I wanted to understand about uh, about uh, Metro How do how do you uh, you know get hold of LPs for your fund? Uh, what was the strategy for you to you know? Uh, Hold of the LPs, or you know, how did you build those relationships with them?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I would say that just before we get into the sort of LP stuff, I think Metagrove has always been a community. I think that that's as, as sort of pretext is we never wanted Metagrove to be a fun per se, it was always like, well, how can we make this into a fun? I guess syndicate where we can sort of share deals with each other, we can co invest together, we can help founders grow. Because the origin story of Metagrove wasn't necessarily a VC fund per se, it was more so uh, just a bunch of people that I knew very well, whether it be friends, colleagues, ex coworkers, acquaintances, those and everyone in that community was obviously domain experts themselves. And A lot of it was just on the idea of helping founders, where I would maybe sometimes meet a founder. I wouldn't necessarily know the answer to one question they had. I was like, "Hey, well, why don't I sort of uh, you know send you to one of my one person that I know, and then they can help you out with I don't know GTM, for example, or how to hire a good team." And I think from that it sort of snowballed into something bigger, where a lot of the founders came to us more and more. And said, "Look, we really love your network. We want to sort of see how we can uh, be, you know, engaged with more of that. But also, a lot of on the on the flip side, a lot of the folks um, in my community said, look, why don't you start to think about maybe doing a fund or a rolling fund or something?'" And it was yeah. never on my mind. Um, so, but eventually, you know, I, I sort of uh, got uh, obsessed with the idea of building something like this because there was just so much deal flow we were getting. Mm-hmm. And there was so much opportunities, and then from that that community alone, that's where I started to build my LPs, and no, uh, and I would say that not everyone in my community are LPs. I think it's just a handful of those who who obviously have the capital requirements to do so, but also who wanted who believed in the mission as well. So initially, you know, from a very grassroots level, it was me just speaking one-on-one, say, like, hey, you know, I'm I'm thinking about doing this, building a fund out. What do you think? Here's my preliminary, you know, pitch deck, you know, take a look at it uh, and see what you think. And a lot of them gave me feedback, um, a lot of good critical feedback as well, but they still, you know, stayed with me and they said, look, you know, keep me updated along the way, away. finesse your mandate, finesse your thesis a little bit more, and then we can talk about that and, and see if I could be an LP. And I kept doing that. It's just a lot of iterations as you would, you know, with a founder, a founder does the same thing. And once you are able to uh, get to a point where you kind of now have been able to see what the opportunity is and be able to, uh you know, articulate that. In a deck or through a, a virtual phone call or a coffee meet, then that's where the moment you start to say, okay, maybe they're kind of interested in now. And that's where a lot of the you know folks who initially started off as community members began to become interested as an LP's like, look, I'll throw in some money just to see, just to support you. But I want to I also want to see where this goes as well. Yeah. And then eventually a lot of these LPs connected me with some of their LP friends as well. And so you have this sort of nice flywheel effect going. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that was sort of the um, end, you know, the be and all of everything. I think in many cases, you do end up in dead ends. And for example, if you are trying to raise money and then an LP says no, then you obviously you keep them on your books and you keep them updated about what's going on for the future because it's never a no-no. It's always no for now and then maybe a yes for later. But at the same time, you always want to do cold outreach as well. And I know a lot of people, this is sometimes a contentious issue about reaching out cold, but I think it's perfectly fine as long as you're reaching out to the right people. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, if you're reaching out to people and LPs who align with your mandate, let's say have their experience in your industry or your field. Uh, of where you're investing then that would be a perfect fit and it can, you can always introduce yourself it's like hey you know I'm, I'm Barry I'm I'm really interested in working with you because of your investing experience or your operator experience and I've also noticed that you're an LP in your fund would you be interested in you know learning a bit more about us and that's a good teaser uh, email, LinkedIn message, whatever you want to do to reach out to them, and then hopefully you know you'll you'll get a a conversation with them, and then if it, if that doesn't go well, you know you can always include them uh in your email list as well. At least you know someone where you've started to build a, a cohort of people of LPs who are either yes or no or on the line, but nonetheless you should always keep them updated about um your progress of the fund because you just never know if someone has a change of heart. And they feel like, oh, maybe you know what they're doing now is really cool. Maybe it's time to get in. So I think for the most part, it's it's a lot of uh, you know hustle at the beginning, but eventually yeah. you start to build a network, and eventually things get easier and easier.
0: Mm, interesting. And, and and you mentioned about sourcing deals. So how how do you how do you source deals in Australia and Southeast Asia?
1: so i think a lot of the so generally speaking deals come in from many many directions i would say and this is not true for me this is true for a lot of people whether it be people that you know friends it could be through uh you know organizations that you're part of it could be accelerators you name it right so i think that the i like to think of it as a pyramid so the base layer Is where everyone can can see the deals. You know, you can see things on crowdfunding websites. You can see things on public websites, and people are starting to sort of raise money for the next thing. The next layer on top of that is really like, okay, you know, how the, you know, where's the next area that you can get deal flow? And that's probably through accelerator programs. If you're part of them, if you're a mentor or something like that, and then they'll come to you. Um, Another one is, uh, you know, cold outreach as well. You know, people will just reach out to you through LinkedIn and they'll sort of say, you know, wanted to see if there's investment in people. I get that all the time through both LinkedIn and email. Obviously it's not necessarily the best because they just have access to your contact details and they'll just ping you anytime. But I think it gets much more serious and the quality uh, increases as you start to get referrals in. And obviously This is true for a lot of other VCs as well. Is if you can develop a strong network of people around you that you know well, but who also have access to deals themselves, then they can also become uh, scouts for you. At the end of the day, and so that's something that we've been able to build quite well with Metagrove. Is that as again, you know, coming back to the whole community side of things, is that because we were a community at the beginning. All of these deals were just coming from our community organically anyway. So by the time the deals come to us, the quality of the deal flow has gone up significantly because there's been a lot of vetting before it yeah. gets to us. It's like, well, how do we get this to Barry's or Metagrove in uh, Barry's team, or how do we get this to Metagrove? But they also know that, you know, we weren't just investing in anything. So we've made it very clear to our community. About what we like, who we invest in, where we invest. And so before they even send stuff to us, they already have an idea in their head about who to send this to. And if it's not fit for us, then, you know, we'll send it to someone else. But I think that's a great way to filter deal flow is through your personal network and see how that goes. And all the deals that we've invested in have become, have come through our personal network. And that might be just some of the community members or it could be fellow VCs. You know, a lot of VCs are maybe too early, or it could be too late, and so we sort of fit in in the middle somewhere. And we always like to sort of collaborate amongst the ecosystem to see, you know, who's looking at what. Um, are you seeing this? What do you think about these guys? And so, if there's a consensus among the, uh, you know, a cohort of investors then you know that there's something there and that's where again you you have more conviction because there's also reinforcement from other players to say look i think there's definitely an opportunity here and we want to invest in these guys and we want to help them so that's another way that we could you know access uh, good deal flow as well
0: got mm, interesting and um and, and what do you look for in early founding team uh, is it is it the market or or the team or the opportunity what 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 is it that you're looking for?
1: I think it's a combination of everything. You right. know, it's, it's, it would be, I would be remiss to say that if it, it has nothing to do with the founders, I mean, it has everything to do with the founders, to be honest, because you're investing at such an early stage, but the founders, obviously they, they really have to know their stuff. Uh, they really got to know what they're trying to do here ideally for us when it comes if we put the founder lens on we really want to have people uh, who have been working in the industry for quite some time they could have just been working as graduates or working as interns and they work their way up and they realize huh maybe i could do something more with my life and then i realize huh there's an opportunity in this industry that i've identified but no one has been able to you know have the courage to do something about it, and so that's where we see there's there's an arbitrage opportunity where these founders are saying, maybe there's I need like there's something there, I want to do something about it, but now I just need to be able to have the guts and the courage to actually build something myself, and that's when we know that there's a lot of uh, grit and hustle there because we know that these founders. Are really focused on solving this problem, and they're willing to move heaven and earth to do this. So that's why I feel like partnering with these types of founders is incredibly important. Now, beyond that, you know, whether notwithstanding the founders, when we talk about opportunity and market, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's part of our due diligence, and we see what it potentially looks like. We look at the competition, the incumbents, and see exactly what it looks like. But it's not necessarily as important. As the founding team, because it doesn't matter what you throw at these guys or girls. If, you know, if you've got competition or you've got, you know, um, you know, a a market, uh, these guys or girls will know how to execute and, um, they'll basically be able to overcome any hurdle that gets thrown at them. So that's why it's important to obviously have that focus on the founders, but then tie that in with the opportunity, the market, the problem that they're trying to solve, the competition. And then if everything sort of ticks those boxes along the way, then we have pretty high conviction that we want to um, support uh, their growth and, and join them for their journey.
0: Got it. And, and what's the average uh, check size for uh, for the companies that you invest in?
1: Yeah. So for us, we are an emerging fund. So we try to obviously have skin in the game, but we want to do that with caution as well. So because we are early stage, we try to do range check size ranges from, you know, 50 K, uh, to 250 K ish. And that really depends on the growth of the company where they're at. And we potentially will follow on as well. But ideally, it really is the assessment of a combination of the support that we can give them it's also a combination of the valuation of the company as well and also the impact the runway that they can have along the way so if they can you know raise this amount of money and last them for the next 12 to 18 months i think that's going to be a good way for them to develop the growth and the traction that they need to raise the next round in the next you know the next period
0: mainman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit MailmanHQ.com and use the code LSM uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit MailmanHQ.com and use the code LSM you work for, for for big companies like you know um uh, like Verizon and Skylo or well, what is your take on operator led funds or you know founder led funds do you think uh, operators or founders should just focus on their work and not get into angel investing and and you know run these micro funds or do you think it it helps them to learn about uh about the investing aspect and put on the investing hat and, and learn about uh, you know, the business. Uh, 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 I just wanted to understand what are your thoughts on operator-led funds or, you know, founder-led funds?
1: I personally like it. I, I want more of it. I think mm-hmm. that there is definitely uh, a skew towards non-founder-led funds and non-operator-led funds because of just the pedigree that these people have because they've come back from, they've come from a certain uh, background means that you know they're going to go into this industry and, and help. And I think that's great. I think we, we need more of that, but we also need a balance as well. I think being an operator like me has always has given me perspective when it comes to working with early stage founders, especially if you're working at the early stage, you want to really click and you want to have chemistry with the founders. Now, founders obviously have probably been operators themselves as well. So you want to get make sure that you're on the same wavelength. And in many cases, a lot of founders like the idea of someone being able to understand what they're going through because- if you're an operator or a founder yourself and you've gone into VC or if you've gone into angel investing, you understand, you've been at the front line, you know what it's like to build a company, you know the highs and the lows. So you are you feel like you're a, a a comrade from them. You feel like they're part of, you know, the your 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 team rather than one's bigger than the other. It's sort of like I want to invest in you, for example, if I'm the VC or the angel investor but I understand what you've gone through as a founder and I want to help you get to where you want to go. So I think there's a lot more empathy when it comes to these operator-led or founder-led funds. And I think we need more of them because sometimes in many cases, a lot of VCs will probably just hand out money um, and not necessarily help. I hope that's not the case, but I, I, I want to see that a lot of these operators and founders will come in and say, look, I know what you're going through. I want to help you in the best way that I can. And I am happy to advise you. I'm happy to connect you with people that I know who are also operators and founders because being a founder is a lonely journey. It's a very rewarding journey, but it's a lonely journey in many cases. So I think for um, for operator-led funds or founder-led funds, I think it there's a greater sense of chemistry between the two. That's what I found because they understand. And especially if I, I if I have a technical background and I'm speaking with uh, an engineer who's trying to build his own or her own company, then I can go into the ground level with them. I can see them building the infrastructure, figure out what coding language do you want to use? What stack do you want to build? And not every VC can do that. And so I, I think it's great to have that technical background or that operator background in general. But I think it's, it's, I think we need more of those types of people to get into the industry and sort of uh, sort of fuel the next wave of of entrepreneurs.
0: All right, and uh, especially during these times, you know, it looks like it's become really difficult to raise uh, funding for for founders and especially and also for VCs to figure out where to invest in. What do you think? In your view, is the biggest misalignment between founders and VCs uh, during these times?
1: You mean through the fundraising times?
0: Um, yeah, during the fundraising times, um, especially during tougher times when you know the right. uh, you know uh, it's been a tough market, right? Uh, with a lot of founders not being able to meet up the expectations. Uh, um, but what has been the biggest misalignment? Where the founder thinks that they've got the traction and the team, but the VC's don't think so.
1: Yeah, I mean. I think generally speaking it has been a tough time for everyone especially in that you know part of the 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 startup space I would say that you shouldn't stop building stuff you should always continue building and innovating no matter what what happens I think there's always obviously you know there's good timing and bad timing but at the end of the day you should always try to put your best foot forward as a founder and build the question is though whether you're going to receive the, the, uh, you, your expectations are going to be met when it comes to, uh, building what you want and and also fundraising what you want as well. I think I've seen a lot of cases where companies have, you know, flopped because they couldn't fundraise for their company and they've had to stop or pause it, at least for the meantime. Uh, I've seen these situations where, uh, valuations have gone down. So it's been a down round versus an up round. And I think that is just part of the cycle of things. Unfortunately, I think it really depends on, on the value of what you're building as well. If you can bootstrap, I would recommend that right. because it means that you can at least hunker down and start building without raising external funding for now. And then when times are better, then you can go out blazing with a great product and you can get, you know, good terms on that and, and fundraise but there are a lot of companies out there who need to fundraise you know depending on their whatever situation they're in they just need to raise external funding and if that's the case then i think they need to come to terms with the idea that it may not go the way that they want and that whether it gets realized as a down round or less money raised or whatever it may be i think it's been difficult for a lot of founders and vcs as well you know vcs have a lot of money on their side to deploy but they want to be they're a bit more conservative i would say uh since the last since 2020 2021 and even before that i think they're not um they're more focused now on on traction and they're more focused on um being cash flow positive than anything else i think there are a few VC's out there who are still opportunistic and they'll obviously throw in, uh, invest in things that just move. But I think for the most part, people are trying to be a bit more cautious about what's happening. So if it's any advice to founders, if they want to continue to fundraise, I'd say, please do so, but make sure that you understand uh, what you're agreeing to in terms of the deal terms, in terms of what you're trying to raise for, and also the runway as well. I think runway is extremely important. And if you're able to conserve cash over a longer timeframe and prolong that, I think that's going to put you in a in a good position. There may be people out there who'd say, you know, you need to scale quickly and build fast, but that really depends on what you're trying to build as well and how capital intensive you need to have that money put to work. But I would say, for generally speaking, B two B, maybe you know, there's definitely a level of conservatism right now, and and just trying to do with do what uh, with what you can, with what you have, and then try to build traction and and growth and and build and, and continue to grow, and eventually come you know next year when things start to uh, get better and better then go out there and start building traction with investors and uh, get uh, build that round eventually but i think it definitely uh, right now it's it's definitely a negotiation that needs to take place between the the founders and the and the investors
0: Got it. and uh, especially when it comes to angel investing and investing through your fund what's been your biggest hit and your biggest miss and, and- and how has it impacted your decision-making, especially uh, your, your big hits? Does it affect your decision-making to keep investing into those startups where you've got success?
1: Yeah, I mean, our portfolio, so just as context, our portfolio is still quite young. So we don't, I think we've invested, we started investing late last year. And so we haven't yet seen the uh, ultimate value of what these companies could potentially look like. So these guys are obviously early stage. They're doing incredibly well, uh, considering the times that we've gone through thus far. Everyone's earning revenue. Everyone's growing month on month. Uh, but at the same time, I think we're also cognizant of the fact that these companies are operating in different industries at the same time. They're building different products. Right. So, I wouldn't uh, put it to a hit or a miss per se, but I would definitely say that there are certain things we are looking at right now to say and, and projecting forward and extrapolating out about what could potentially the industry look like in the near future. And I think that's exciting, but it also gives us food for thought about some of the investments we've already made. And it allows us to sort of retroactively go back and say, well, we invested in this company for these reasons, because we have the deal memo. So we have everything in front of us that we've created at that time. And we can say, okay, what were the factors that allowed us to have the conviction to invest? And then would we do the same today? And would we do the same again in the future? And that's some. And sometimes it's a yes. It's a yeah. It's a hell yes. But so yeah. in many cases, it's like uh, maybe we'll have to think about it. We'll see what the market looks like going forward because things change all the time. Inflation is coming through right now. That's affecting many parts of the industry as well. So I think there's the short-term outlook and the very long-term outlook. And I think the long-term outlook is much more harder to predict, obviously. But I think going back, we always. Uh, As part of our own internal due diligence as a fund, we always try to make sure that we are retroactively going back through our notes, through everything that we've done so far, and then looking at the information we have now and historically, and then trying to see if it's the same uh, mandate and thesis going forward, because You never know, the thesis may change along the road. We're not fixed. We don't have a fixed mindset. We're always growth oriented. So we always want to adapt and see where the market goes. Um, And we, we, we would be selfish to think otherwise. So I think for the most part, we want to see exactly what the influences are, especially with technology like AI, blockchain and everything. How does that play into it? And how does that affect things so there's a, a massive dynamic at play but it's also exciting because you get to sort of start to you start to create thought experiments about what what it actually looks like down the road and also hopefully um you know provides you a bit more context about what the future looks like so that from that standpoint i think it's it's been fun
0: got it and you know i quickly want to do the top three what, what's your favorite business book
1: Oh, wow, okay. so I think the my fear i don't I don't have any specific favorites, but I would say that the one book that I've been uh trying to read um and i'm I'm actually reading now is the uh, It's on Failure and How to Fail Fast, and I think there's some insights into building great companies and just building great things where learning to fail is actually a a, a great virtue rather than a vice. Mm. And so I think we all fail and that's part of the game, but I think we need to appreciate failure a bit more. And I think um, failing is just a step to success. So I'll definitely uh, provide you the proper title. So you can probably add that to your show notes, um, yeah. but that's been my uh, interesting book I've been reading so far.
0: Got it. And you know, if, If you could go back uh, to the time when you started angel investing and got into VC, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently?
1: I think I would have become, I would have probably put a bit more effort into thinking about the industry and also the founders more. Um, I think angel investing can always be very exciting and a lot of adrenaline comes through when you are investing in these types of early stage companies, especially if you're new as well. You just don't know what's what's around. You don't know what you don't know at the end of the day. So yes. I think you really got to engage with more angel investors, pick mm-hmm. their brains, ask them questions, and say, you know, what are you know the the downsides and upsides of angel investing? What do you what can you gain from this? And I just didn't do that more. I I have that. You know, retroactively, I have that now in hindsight. But back then, I think I would have spoken to more people to sort of get an understanding of what this entire space was all about. Got it.
0: And, and what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack,
1: Zoom? Uh, well, I always love Gmail, and I, I, I love using Slack for my community, uh, but I love using Airtable, Notion. I think those are the great tools that I use on a daily basis. They are great tools to be able to organize things, have like a CRM to manage my LPs. That's why I use Airtable for Notion. I use for deal memos. I use for uh, company updates and everything. So it's a nice repository for me to keep things in check. And I usually also have a content calendar as well on Notion as well, and mm-hmm. that allows me to keep track of you know marketing materials, branding, and what have you, and and it puts everything in sort of like a nice solo, single place for storage, which is which is amazing to have.
0: Got it. So we'll put, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, Barry, what is the best best way people can reach out to you and know more about uh, Metagrove?
1: So people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, so you just type my full name in or you can just type in Metagrove uh, and you can also reach out to me through just the Metagrove website. So if you're a budding founder and you're doing something amazing, uh, we always love to sort of learn more and see what you're doing. So you can just go to the Metagrove website and you, there's, a, there's a pitch link that you can apply to your company. But if you just want to get connected in any way, I think LinkedIn or even Twitter is the, the two avenues that I use the most.
0: We'll put another show notes. Barry, thank you so much for taking on time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you.
1: Thanks, Rohit. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.